Have you ever had that feeling when you leave the doctor's office and think, what did they just say? Or have any burning questions you didn't have time to ask? Or I don't remember anything that just happened in that appointment. Or even, were they speaking my language? Yeah, us too. That's where we come in. We're the podcast dedicated to helping you understand what your doctor said about that thing you saw your doctor for in the first place. We understand it can be an information overload. We're here to help. I'm Dr. Josh Fletcher, a family medicine resident at Northrop General Hospital in Toronto. And I'm Jake Bloom, the person who doesn't know what's happening at the doctor's office. Welcome to Dr. Dictionary. I just want to make a quick disclaimer that this podcast isn't meant to be a replacement for a traditional doctor's appointment, nor is it meant to be providing medical advice. Rather, it's meant to be a supplement to your doctor's visit and explain why your doctor asked what they asked and help you explain the diagnosis and common treatment plans. Lastly, doctors often have very different styles and approaches to a patient and their diagnosis. If we discuss a question or treatment plan that your doctor didn't mention, that doesn't mean that they were wrong. This could represent a different in practice style or simply the fact that your doctor knows you better than we do and has created a treatment plan that better fits your lifestyle. All right. Welcome to another edition of Dr. Dictionary, the podcast explainer for all your questions before, during, or after your visit to the doctor. I'm Jake Bloom, and joining me as always is Toronto resident Dr. Josh Fletcher. What's up, Doc? Not too much. Excited again for this week's topic. Yeah, excited too. Why don't you intro this week's topic and explain why you chose it? So this week we're talking about anxiety. In the first two series of episodes, we've talked about depression as well as ADHD. So it made sense to move on from those two topics and talk about another very common mental health condition, which is anxiety, and dive deeper into this topic. Okay, Josh, let's get to this week's topic, anxiety. What does anxiety actually mean? Everyone's definition of anxiety is specific to them. It's different. So a question I really like to ask that I learned from working with psychiatrists at North York General is, when you say you're anxious, what does that actually mean? If you're explaining anxiety to somebody who had no idea what you're talking about, how would you explain it? And you'll find that when you ask it like that, so many people have a different answer. Sometimes it can be a chronic worrying, muscle tension, feelings of fear or a sense of doom. There can be a lot of physical changes, chest pain, heart palpitations, or you're feeling like your heart's beating over your chest. You're sweating, you're dizzy, hot flashes, nausea, shortness of breath, or a tightness in your chest. Some people have tremors and they're trembling. Some people have a feeling like they're outside their body and they're watching their life like a movie. That can affect your sleep. It can make you feel on edge. These are sort of the anxiety symptoms that I've heard described to me in the past. And it's important to note as well, it can happen in children, and children can present differently. They can lack self-confidence and constantly require reassurance. They can have problems sleeping, physical complaints like headaches, stomach aches, nausea, irritability. And a big one is worrying in school or school refusal, which can be related to anxiety. And then, like adults, social and relationship problems can happen in children as well. So what anxiety means is different to everybody and specific to everybody, but those are some of the more common things that I've heard before. 
hearing you list off some of those symptoms, especially the chronic worrying and feeling of fear or sense of doom, really reminded me of all the feelings that I had watching the Raptors last night. So I'm just curious, is it normal to have some anxiety? It's very normal. It would be abnormal for us to never feel worried or nervous at any time. That anxiety can motivate us. It keeps us on our toes. However, we start considering it an anxiety disorder when it becomes excessive. This excessive fearfulness, avoidance, or anxiousness of these perceived threats is out of proportion to the perceived threat. It persists in multiple environments. It occurs for a long time, over six months, and it impairs your function. So you're not functioning as well in your work, in your social life, your relationships, or other areas of your life as well. So when anxiety starts to permeate multiple aspects of your life, then we start to get worried about an anxiety disorder. But before that, it's normal for everybody to experience anxiety at some point. So that anxiety disorder, the one that permeates, how common would you say that is in patients? Extremely common. And it's actually the most prevalent mental health condition in the world. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, it affects approximately 40 million adults over age 18, which is larger than the population of Canada when you think about it. There's also many different types of anxiety disorders. It's very, very common to have a specific phobia, being claustrophobic, being afraid of spiders. Social anxiety is also very common. As well, what's also common with anxiety, like we talked about with ADHD, like we talked about with depression, are these comorbidities or other conditions associated with anxiety. As many as 50% of people who have one anxiety disorder actually meet criteria for a second. As well, depression can be comorbid or other sort of mental health conditions as well. What are some of the risks for developing anxiety? We like to think about it in the same way as depression with that biopsychosocial model. Again, breaking that down, biological, psychological, and social. And a lot of these factors that are leading to an anxiety disorder are the same factors that can lead to depression or other mental health conditions. Right. Biological, genetics, for example. You have a much higher risk if you have a family history of an anxiety disorder. Medical illnesses can lead to anxiety. Disorders over hormones, like having a high thyroid level or a low blood sugar. It can be related to heart conditions, brain conditions, lung conditions. It can also be related to caffeine use, other medications, or even illicit substances as well. In the psychological side, we think about the current stresses in your life, how you internalize this information. Childhood traumas, childhood adversities, for example, early parental loss can have a huge effect. And lastly, we have the social side, your income, your job status, which supports you have in your life. All of these aspects kind of meld together and form a picture that can lead to somebody being more prone to developing anxiety. So we don't like to say there's only one cause for anxiety, but it's a combination of all these factors. In our previous episode, you talked about how depression, the way that you were looking at it, had to be something that was permeating, had to uh, last pretty long in order for it to be qualified as depression. Is that the same case for anxiety or can that one just come and go? So anxiety in general is not always constant. Some people will explain that in certain situations they feel more anxious, whereas in other situations they have no anxiety whatsoever. Some people have that constant worrying about everything in their life, 
And we say these people have a generalized anxiety. But like I said before, it's normal to have anxiety in certain situations. However, when we start thinking about anxiety disorders, then it's similar to depression. Right. This anxiety extends not only in a short time period and comes and goes, but applies to all sorts of situations occurring that lead to the anxiety. Is that where panic attacks would come in? Yeah, so panic attacks are are under the head of anxiety disorders. And when we think about a panic attack, we classify them as an abrupt surge of intense fear or discomfort that reaches a max within minutes. And it doesn't necessarily have to involve any known triggers. You can be sitting there and all of a sudden you get this intense fear or discomfort. Okay. It can resolve within minutes. It can take longer, but usually takes about 5 to 20 minutes. And the symptoms can be very similar to anxiety symptoms. But the main thing is that abruptness. And there's also an associated fear of having another attack when we think about panic disorder. Some of those symptoms, sweating, tremors, unsteadiness, dizziness, hot flashes, nausea, fear, chest pain, palpitations. And when we think about these symptoms, these are what's associated with that panic attack. And like I said before, to be classified as someone who has a panic disorder, not just one panic attack, but a panic disorder, first, like we said before, it has to be occurring over a certain time period. And we have to have a panic attack, at least one, that's followed by this intense fear of having another one that really affects how you're living your life. So that's kind of the difference between just normative anxiety that we like to think about and an actual abrupt panic attack. Now... As we're sort of getting into the different types of anxieties, in general, how would you say you treat them? Anxieties are treated very similarly to all mental health disorders. We think about education and then the non-medical treatment or the non-medication approach versus the medication approach. Right. The first step with all mental health conditions is talking to your doctor. And I hope if you're listening to this podcast, you've already taken that step. And I commend you on doing that because it's really a hard part And there's a huge stigma associated with all mental health conditions, especially anxiety and depression. And taking that step and actually bringing it up to your doctor is huge. Absolutely. I think we could just almost go without saying that uh, talking to your doctor is always the best step, always like the step that we would encourage. Exactly. Now, when we think about the non-medical treatments or the non-medication treatments for anxiety, we talk about different coping strategies, mindfulness, deep breathing and relaxation, avoiding caffeine, making sure you're sleeping enough hours throughout the night, exercise and diet. Similar things that we talked about in depression can also be applied to anxiety. Then we also have psychotherapy, and we use CBT specifically for anxiety as well. You might remember we did an entire episode based on psychotherapy and CBT. Now, having someone to talk to can be very important, whether that's your therapist Guidance counselors at school, et cetera, can be very helpful as well. And then we have the medication part. And the medications for anxiety are the same medications that we use for depression. So the antidepressants are also the anti-anxiolytics. So I encourage you to go back to our episode on the medications of depression as well to get more information about this. Why caffeine specifically to avoid? So caffeine can be a stimulant that can increase your heart rate, cause a lot of the similar symptoms of anxiety. So people who are having a lot of caffeine always feel like on edge. They might have some tremors associated with that, feel like their heart's being out of their chest, and that can really go with anxiety. 
and simulate some of the symptoms of anxiety as well. Earlier in the episode, we were talking a bit about some of the ways anxiety can be personified, whether it's through phobias, social anxiety, or generalized anxiety. Can we talk a bit more about these? Yeah, of course. So let's start with phobias, because I think you mentioned this is the most common. Is it just that when you're really scared of spiders and heights, the ones that you were talking about before? Basically. So a specific phobia is a lot of fear or excessive fear, anxiety, or avoidance of a specific object or situation. And it is the most common anxiety disorder. Like other anxiety disorders, that fear is out of proportion to the danger perceived and is quite excessive. You're actively avoiding this object. There are many different types of specific phobias. It can be related to animals like spiders, insects, dogs. For me personally, it's bees. Mm -hmm. Natural forces, heights, water, storms. It can be related to blood or injections. It can be situational, like airplanes or elevators, small spaces, like claustrophobia. Or it could be other. It could be about choking, about vomiting, etc. But again, this is the most common anxiety disorder out there, and a ton, a ton, a ton of people have either one or more specific phobias. I feel like phobias are something that we've normalized in society. So you're right. Specific phobias in society have been quite normalized. That being said, if a specific phobia is affecting your social life, your work life, and you're really having a hard time functioning, then we can really start thinking about treatment. Mm -hmm. With specific phobias, the gold standard or the best treatment, again, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And with CBT for specific phobias, we go through this process called systematic desensitization. Now, this is a very fancy word. Basically, what that means is, for example, if you were scared of spiders, we'd go through a ranking list from 1 to 10. 1 being something about spiders you're really not scared of. For example, looking at a picture of a spider. 10 would be something you're terrified of, like touching a live spider. And we move our way through from number 1 to number 10 systematically, meaning we don't jump from 1 to 10, but we slowly transition it and help you get over that fear. The theory goes that when you have this peak in anxiety, we often will avoid that object. If we see a spider, we'll avoid it because our anxiety gets so high, and that will cause our anxiety to go down. But actually, what we learn is that this anxiety is self-limiting, meaning if we persevere through it and stick it out, yes, our anxiety is going to be high, but it's not going to stay high forever. It could be 15 seconds and then kind of go down. So if we learn to get over that initial hump, that initial 15 seconds, then it will start to go down and we become desensitized like we were talking about before. So Josh, let's move on to social anxiety. And what does that really mean? Is it sort of just that you're anxious in social situations? When we think about anxiety disorders, it really comes down to why you're experiencing this anxiety. With social anxiety, again, you have that marked fear, anxiety, or avoidance like anything else specifically of social situations. Now, why are you scared or why are you anxious? It's not because you'd rather be home and you're just happier being home, but it's a specific fear of negative evaluation. You're fearful of being scrutinized, of people looking down on you, being embarrassed, humiliated, rejected, offending other people. Social anxiety really relates to that negative evaluation. 
And it happens not only with people in power or with adults if you're a teenager or a kid, but it can happen with your friends as well. And with specifically social anxiety disorder, like all other anxiety disorders, it causes a lot of problems in your social life, at school or in your job, etc. Now, how do you differentiate being shy from having social anxiety? So it's normal to have some shyness. And it's very common. It will just take you time to warm up over whatever short period of time. And there's nothing wrong with this. It's when it starts to have a significant adverse effect on your social life, your work, other areas of your life, then we start thinking about social anxiety. And again, it comes down to why are you being shy? Are you just taking time to warm up to new people? Or do you really fear that negative evaluation other people have of you? And how about treatment-wise? What are the best approaches for social anxiety? So again, it comes down to non-medication and medication like we are talking about before. Non-medication we can treat via CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy again. Restructuring your thoughts, challenging like we talked about in the episode, those maladaptive thought patterns or those bad thought patterns. Medication-wise, it's very similar to depression. And in the end, your doctor can help you choose a medication that's right for you. You also spoke about generalized anxiety disorder. Now, what does that one mean? And what is actually generalized? So the word generalized refers to worries about many different aspects of your life, or a generalized worry. And these patients will often describe themselves as worriers. You worry about a number of events and activities about many different parts of your life. Mm -hmm. And again, it's excessive. It occurs more days than not for over six months to actually be diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. These people have problems with uncertainty. They can be very fidgety or very tense. It can be also associated with symptoms like restlessness, being easily fatigued, having difficulty concentrating, muscle tension, irritability, or even sleep disturbances. What's the treatment for GAD? So again, now when I describe the treatment, you're probably going to note a pattern with anxiety in that first, the treatment is psychoeducation or education about your psychiatric condition or your mental health condition avoiding the triggers of anxiety, talking about the physical symptoms, avoiding caffeine, making sure you're sleeping enough, Mm -hmm. exercising, good diet, avoiding high sugar drinks and foods. And then again, medications versus non-medications. Psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy can be very useful. And then medications, again, very similar to depression, but we start at a lower dose. Now, there are some other medications we can use in the short term that can quell your anxiety, and it's best to leave this up to your doctor to choose the medication that's right for you. A lot of these anxiety disorders seem similar. Is it tough to differentiate them when patients come in? Yeah, and it can be really tough, and like you're right, the symptoms can be quite similar, and that's where the expertise of your doctor comes in. It depends why you're experiencing the anxiety, what's actually driving those feelings, and with your doctor, we really have to consider all these different aspects when picking the right treatment plan for you. And with the treatment timeline, would you say it's similar to that of the depression treatment timeline? Exactly. So with CBT, it can take about 12 to 20 weeks. And then with these medications, for depression, we like to think about it for six to nine months for the actual medication part, and it can be similar for anxiety as well. Great. Uh, Lastly, what resources would you recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about anxiety? So there's a great resource, Anxiety Canada. That has a lot of information that's easy to understand about anxiety, as well as the Canadian Mental Health Association, CMHA. 
And lastly, we have the Center for Clinical Interventions, which we talked about in the depression episode, the CCI, and their specific anxiety webpage, which again has lots of information and good workbooks. And we'll link all three of these in the description below. No, that's great, Josh. Thank you so much for coming on today and talking anxiety with us. Anytime. And as always, if you guys have any more questions, feel free to email us at thedoctordictionary at gmail.com or book another appointment with your doctor. I'd also like to thank Dr. Stephen Galper, a staff psychiatrist at North York General Hospital, for peer-reviewing this episode, as well as Nick and John Bragagnolo for recording the original music. And that will wrap up today's episode of Dr. Dictionary. I'm Jake Bloom. And I'm Dr. Josh Fletcher. See you next time.